welcome to the Farming on Purpose podcast. Today's challenges in agriculture are new, but the grit and determination required to be successful have been handed down for generations. On the Farming on Purpose podcast, we preserve the ag heritage and traditions we built our identity on while pursuing the American dream of multi-generation farms that innovate for the future. Listen along as we share stories of how farmers and ranchers are building legacies, both in their business and their character, for the sake of those they'll pass the reins to. I'm your host, Lexi Wright, and I'm excited to talk with you about the financial, generational, and production challenges facing producers in the ag industry today. This podcast is brought to you by Back Pocket Social Marketing. And yes, this is Lexi here. This podcast has been a real passion project for me. All the time that goes into interviewing guests, editing, and producing the show is sponsored by my freelance marketing agency. We specialize in website design, social media advertising, content creation and management, and email marketing. If you like to take a foundational approach to your marketing and figure out exactly what's working for you and what's not, and really focus on efficiency, then you would be a great candidate to work with us. You can reach out and talk with us more at Lexi at BackPocketSocial.com. We would love to help you solve your marketing challenges. Welcome back to the Farming on Purpose podcast. I'm so glad you're here today. And if you are a first time listener, thanks so much for joining us. Today's episode is going to be part two of talking about food accessibility. And while this is not the typical topics that we cover on this podcast, it is very, very important to the mission of the podcast, which is all about preserving farm legacies and farm families. And if we don't talk about food, the end product of what we're all doing, I don't think we have any right to continue that conversation. So this is a little bit different take, but I hope you enjoy the discussion and I hope you'll chime in and offer your thoughts as well on social media or via email. I would love to hear your thoughts on these topics as well. So if you haven't listened to part one of the food accessibility conversation, um, that was episode 23. Go back, check it out and give it a listen. I, I think it's a good introduction to what we're going to talk about today. On that episode, we dove pretty headfirst into the topic of food accessibility and what it means to be distanced from our food and our food decisions. Today, I want to take just a little bit more time to define some of the terms that came up in that discussion and think about what they mean on a larger scale and on a smaller scale. So we're just getting into the meat of this here. The very first thing I think that is important as we look at this conversation is that most of the terms that we're discussing are pretty underdefined. We use a lot of different terms in this conversation about food security, food accessibility for food availability, but actually we almost use them interchangeably and they don't mean the same thing to everyone. So defining what those terms mean more consistently is going to be a big help in furthering this conversation about food and how our food decisions impact our food availability, accessibility, security, all of those things. It's really interesting to me that due to the huge change that we experienced in almost everything we do in life during COVID, it it had almost this ripple effect in the food system. And we are seeing that We saw it immediately during COVID um, when a lot of the things that we were used to doing wasn't an option anymore. You know, we couldn't necessarily just go to the grocery store whenever we wanted. We didn't know what would be there when we got there. Um, We were turning to a lot of different options that we might not normally have used in that old system. And now since that experience, we're continuing to see more changes in how people source their food and how people make food decisions because of that experience. And what that's really telling us is something that we already knew just at a deeper level. And that is that food decisions are incredibly 
complicated. We don't always just pick the cheapest option. We don't always pick the food that we like the most. We There are just so many factors that influence what we are going to eat on any particular day at any given time. It could be location. It could be availability. It could be how much it costs. It could be that we want to try something new today. It could be that this is food that we've grown up eating and we're looking for something comfortable. It could be that we're feeling like we need to spend a little more on our food or we need to choose healthier options because we read an article that said that X, Y, and Z was not a healthy food. We've always thought of food accessibility in terms of what is the closest place to access affordable food that is generally considered good for your daily diet. And if any of those key factors were missing from that, we would call it a food desert. But what additional research is uncovering is that food deserts have a lot less to do with the distance that you have to travel to get those foods that you are seeking and a lot more to do with the culture in that area um, and other resources that are available or aren't available to you. What we're learning about this is that food is a really important decision to a lot of people. Most people hold their food decisions in rather high esteem. And even if there is a close option, they are often willing to travel much further than that close option to get the food that is the type, quality, and cost that they are seeking. Um, Delivery services of food have actually really changed the landscape of what a food desert is considered now. Because if you can get it delivered to your door and there's no additional cost, really the concept of that that food desert is less applicable to that area. I can already feel myself going down the rabbit hole on this topic of how everything is interconnected. So I'm going to back up for just a second and we're going to define a couple of the key terms that we use when we talk about food. Again, these are not official um, explanations or definitions. This is something that I have found to be helpful, though, when when we have discussions about food, to make sure that we're defining the terms similarly. Um, I am pulling these definitions from a website that I found that is not official in any way, but it is um, the five A's of food security is the title of the article. And the it's published on a website called Florida Freezer, um, which is actually just a company that provides cold storage and logistics for food. Um, so I think it's really interesting that they are chiming in on this topic and really cool that they are choosing to take a stance on investing in how people are talking about food and food security. So they, they define the five A's of food security as first availability. So availability, they are defining as the physical presence of enough food to meet the demands of everyone in the community. Areas that have limited availability are known as food deserts. Given their lack of food, these areas correspond to higher incidences of food security, is what they are saying. Again, we just talked about how that may not necessarily be true, but availability is the physical presence of enough food to meet the needs of everyone in the community. Okay, accessibility. Accessibility is the ability of people to physically obtain food. So there are no barriers preventing people from getting the food that they need, such as unreasonably high prices, limited transportation. Um, We also talked in the previous episode on this topic about how your comfort level of buying certain foods is a big play here. Um, Your comfort level in preparing certain foods is important here. A lot of things go into accessibility. All right. um, The third A of food security, they define as adequacy. Adequacy is the nutritional quality of the food available. So this means that there is enough variety of foods to provide all the essential nutrients people need to stay strong and healthy. And I want to dive into this term specifically here in a minute. Um, I've been really researching food adequacy, and it's just really 
<laughs> really interesting how differently people define this. Okay, food acceptability. So this is the fourth A of food security according to Florida Freezer. Um, acceptability is the degree to which people are actually willing to eat the food. This means the food is palatable, safe to eat, produced and obtained in a way that does not com compromise people's dignity, self-respect or basic human rights. Okay. So this is a huge portion of what our food decisions are based on. If we are not struggling with the other A's of food security. So if food is available, if food is accessible, if food is adequate, then food acceptability is going to be the big decision factor for our food. Food acceptability is what, when we are driving our grocery cart down the aisle, food acceptability is what is top of mind for most of us in that situation. If we are driving our grocery cart down the aisle and there are tons of options on either side, there's multiple brands for the same product, then we are talking about and thinking about food acceptability at that point. The last A um, is food agency. So agency is the ability of people to make choices about what they eat. So people have a say in what foods are available and how they are prepared. Most of us have agency or food agency. I would say um, my kids probably have less food agency than I do because they are not making decisions about what foods we eat. I am deciding what's on the meal plan for today, um, how it's going to prepare, be prepared, and how much of it I'm going to require them to eat before they get dessert. You know, things like that. Um... Food agency is really something that I would say for most people is an option as long as you have all of the other ones, again, already met. We saw a lot of um, decrease in food agency in the past during times of war or conflict when foods were less available that people relied on. Um, for example, when there was food rationing uh, before when people relied heavily on things like potatoes because that was all that was available, um, they were using their agency to, talk, to think of different ways to prepare those potatoes, um, different ways to prepare the foods that were available to them. So food agency um, is one that I feel like is still a little bit more difficult to define because it changes what it means depending on the situation, depending on the food available, accessibility, acceptability, and adequacy. It kind of ties into all of them. Okay, so these are the five A's of food security. And I found another website that I really appreciated the take that they had on this. Um, what is food security based on? And they're talking about how um, food security is not just based on food accessibility. Uh, this website, so you can check it out too, is the straydoginstitute.org. And I'm going to read from their website. It says, access to food, while crucial, is not the only detriment of food security, nutrition security, or food sovereignty. According to the UN Committee on World Food Security, food security consists of four pillars, availability, access, utilization, and stability. If one of these pillars is absent or insufficient, a community or an individual experiences food insecurity. So they're saying that these four pillars are basically holding up how stable our food system is or how secure our food system is. Um, they also define this define these different things. Um, availability is the proximity of purchasable food in a given community. Um, access is means food can be easily found and purchased by everyone. Utilization means the available food can be prepared and consumed um, in a way that contributes to health and well-being. And then stability means the other pillars will be consistent. They will be dependable. Food supplies remain available, accessible, and utilizable. I'm not sure if that's how you say that or if that is really a word, but um, on a daily basis, not fluctuating or disappearing for periods of time. So during COVID, what most of us experienced was the lack of 
food stability. And that's what has kind of transformed or begun to transform the food system as we know it today. We are thinking about, since we may not have as much control over how stable our food system is, how can we take more control over the other options to provide stability when that stability is gone or when it is lacking due to things that happen that are outside of our control? Now, before we go any farther, I think it's important to note that food insecurity or food security is not actually the primary object of this conversation. It is important for us to understand food security because it deeply relates to all of the things that I want to talk about. But solving food security is not why I'm having this conversation. Food security is a global issue that impacts so many people every day and is so far outside of the scope of what I can very realistically contribute to the conversation on. So my my goal instead is to impact the people who are not yet food insecure. 10% of American families and 26% of the worldwide population experience food insecurity. The best way to reduce the potential that insecurity of for everyone else is that more of us are able to contribute to this conversation. More of us can stretch our food dollars and increase the ability and stability and control that we have on these factors that relate to food security so that more people can get the food that they need. So my impact ability and for most of us, our impact ability on the five A's of food security is not high. Most of us do not own a grocery store or do not have the ability to open a grocery store. Um, we don't have the ability to source foods and make sure they are transported to specific areas. Um, I do not have a degree in culinary. I am not a cook. I cannot teach people to make their food more palatable necessarily. I cannot teach them um, how to make more nutritious decisions. I'm not a dietitian. But what I can do is help people to more deeply understand their food decisions and how they can systemize and control their food decisions to reduce the chance that they will become food insecure. Because when we have more stability in our food decisions and in, in all of those factors that affect our food security, we have more agency, we have more ability to impact the people who are food insecure by helping them. It's kind of that um, put your own oxygen mask on before you put the person's next to you on concept that when we are even more food secure ourselves, we can then help those who are less food secure than we are. But if we can't take care of our own food situation, our own food budget, our own pantry, and how accessible, affordable, palatable, um, and stable it is, then we will never be able to help other people do that. So that is my goal, is to impact the people who are not yet food insecure and help them to have more ability to make sure they never become food insecure. And then a step beyond that to help them understand food security in their own communities so that they can have an impact where they are. That's why I want to talk about this topic. I want to talk about it because it impacts so much of our lives. Food impacts everything we do. Um, food decisions are so complicated. And so seeking to better understand those decisions and the importance of those decisions to ourselves and to our families and how we choose to feed ourselves and our families is really the best way for us to make sure that other families get fed. One quote I want to pull from a research article that I read. Um, this is from um, Brookings, South Dakota, and I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. But the topic of this article is Beyond Food Deserts, America Needs a New Approach to Mapping Food Security Insecurity. Um, and it says, with food insecurity top of mind, it's an ideal time to update the concept of geographic food access 
for today's digital economy and consider policies that will marry the need to increase people's buying power with their ability to get the food they need. That is the root of the issue that I want to talk about. We have to figure out how to maximize our food dollar and then maximize our ability to access the food that we want to eat. That is where we will have the most success. Okay, now let's talk a little bit about some of the caveats to this discussion that I want to bring up today. And this is kind of, in my mind, an ongoing episode. I think we're going to talk about this more um, and just kind of keep continuing the conversation, bringing up more points. But I mentioned earlier on that Florida Freezer website, um, they talk about food adequacy, adequacy being the nutritional quality of the food available and its ability to provide all of the essential nutrients that people need to stay strong and healthy um, as as they define it. What is interesting to me about this is that we all have very little understanding of nutritional quality of food available. We may um, think that choosing, for example, choosing a salad when we go to a fast food restaurant is going to be a better option for us to have adequate nutrition and adequate food available. That's not necessarily the case, though. It really is so variable from person to person and diet to diet and what else you ate that day that it's a very complex concept. Um, Another resource that I was checking out recently was, let me find it here. Okay, so this resource was the Shop Simple app from MyPlate, which is a USDA initiative program um, to help people be more educated about their food decisions. Um, And one of the resources on the MyPlate Shop Simple app is a list of recipes that are affordable. Um, And I was scrolling through these recipes because I was like, oh, this is very interesting. I, I wonder how I could maybe utilize this resource. And as I'm scrolling through it, I start to notice a common trend. And that common trend is that most of these recipes two trends, actually. Most of these recipes sound totally awful to me. Um, I am from the Midwest, which a lot of you know, I'm from Kansas. I grew up in a household that I would say was probably median, median income household. Um, So we ate a lot of things like casseroles and meat and potatoes. Um, We, my mom um, tried to do a great job of making sure that we got vegetables and fruits in our diet. I remember that being like a part of like her concept of meal planning was that we had a fruit and a vegetable on the table at every meal. Um, But as I'm going through these recipes, I start to notice that they look absolutely unpalatable to me. Um, And I, I am not the most open um, person about trying new foods, but I'm more open than most of my family is. And as I'm looking at this, I'm like, you know what? I don't think most people in my community even would ever consider about 90% of these recipes that are on this site. So we have this resource, this government funded resource, um, trying to provide nutritious and affordable recipes to people. And it's totally inaccessible to a huge portion of the population. Um, I don't even want to get into how it's also culturally um, accessible to so many people because it's not the type of food that they eat. And I guess that maybe is really what I'm talking about. Sometimes I don't think about culture as being um, just like how we are raised with food, but it's, it's, culturally inaccessible to a huge portion of people who were never raised eating those types of foods. Um, And to give you some context, I'm just going to read a couple of the recipes here so you know what I'm talking about. Okay, here are just the top recipes in the budget-friendly recipes um, 
category on the USDA MyPlate website. There's 162 recipes on here. The And I scrolled through all of them, by the way. Um, the very top ones, apple and chicken salad, apple banana salad with peanuts, apple coleslaw, apple oatmeal muffins, apple tuna sandwiches, apple fennel and chicken salad with couscous, applesauce loaf cake, applesauce pancakes, avocado breakfast bruschetta, um, baked chicken nuggets, baked lentils casserole, banana berry muffins. Okay, let me scroll down a little ways out of the bees. Um, basic steamed collards. Uh, da, 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 da. Beef and bean chili verde. Let's keep going. Brown rice tabbouleh. I'm not 100% sure I'm saying that correctly. Um, brown rice pilaf with sage, walnuts, and dried fruit. Guys, my lack of education around so many foods is really showing here. Um, but I'm going to be vulnerable and let it let it show here. Uh, cheesy broccoli and rice squares. Chicken salad and peach sandwich. Chili popcorn. Um, let's see. Let me get down a little farther here. French spinach frittata. Um, gazpacho? Gazpacho? I'm not sure if I'm saying that right either. Green bean and mushroom medley. Green bean and rice casserole. Green beans with tomato and basil. Uh, kale with nuts and raisins. Lentil. Minstrone, Minstrone, never been sure how to say that. Mango berry rotini salad. Okay, so you get the idea. There, and maybe it's the pictures. Maybe this is a visual experience. So I would encourage you to check out some of the um, recipes at this site. I will link it in the show notes for you. But as I'm scrolling through here, there are very few of these recipes that I myself would consider eating and even fewer of them that I know that I could offer to my family and they would even touch with a 10 foot pole. Um, mainly it is the inclusion of different ingredients in them, like the nuts or the fruits and different things, um, that maybe normally would not have that beet and white bean salad. Like, I'm sorry, I'm not eating any of those things. Uh, okay. So the point is it's very cultural. You may have totally different reactions when you hear that list of recipes than what I do, but I would say I'm a pretty typical Midwestern diet. Um, there are going to be people who are more adventurous than I am. There are going to be people who are less adventurous than I am. The other piece that is immediately apparent on this recipe list is that these are not necessarily part of a balanced diet. There are a lot of salads. There are a lot of soups. There are a lot of, um, I'm going to call them snack foods, like popcorn or smoothies, um, not necessarily that something that you would include as part of a balanced meal, um, or that's going to be filling enough to be like part of your meal or your main course. So we've got 162 recipes that USDA is providing as budget friendly. And I, I'm thinking the reason that they're saying those are budget friendly is because they probably are snap eligible. Um, so that is a little bit easier for them to do. I'm also not saying that USDA should be the end-all be-all for providing resources on budget-friendly recipes. All I'm saying is that there is a serious gap here that is occurring from a primary resource that we are instructed and encouraged to rely on for how to improve or increase the food security that we have in our homes. And it is not very helpful. It is not very accessible. Um, the other trend that I noticed in this budget-friendly recipes list is I only found one. Now, 
again, there's 162. I went through them several times. I could have missed a few, but I only found one recipe that included any protein other than chicken or beans. One recipe. And that was um, the chili beef verde. Um, Now, I understand beef is not always beef, pork, any type of protein are going to be more expensive ingredients in your recipe. But also, they are some of the most nutritionally dense ingredients in your recipe. Again, I am not a nutritionist. I am not a dietitian. I cannot speak super in depth on this. But as someone who is fairly familiar with food and the nutrient the nutrients that are available in food, that is something we accept to be true. Um, Things like amino acids, a lot of our vitamins and minerals, um, protein itself are in these protein foods, in meats. Um, And we're not including them in the USDA recipes that are available to you to to create budget-friendly, nutritious meals. And again, we're going back to our original, um, oh, what is it called? Our original definition here of food that is adequate is that adequate foods have to have essential nutrients that people need to stay strong and healthy. Now, can you get by on a diet of beans and rice and salad? Of course, of course you can. But is that going to be the most efficient use of your food dollar? That is a question that I have. And I cannot speak specifically to that. I'm going to be researching the topic more and I'll probably come back with answers for you in another episode. But in my opinion, um, that is not the most adequate food, especially not if you are relying on this completely. If we were looking at this in... Um, a vacuum of trying to primarily focus on these budget-friendly ingredients and recipes that USDA has identified. Um, Personally, I also don't like that this is a USDA resource and they are not trying to educate people on how to use proteins in their diet and do it affordably. That's a little frustrating. We also know that in the past, um, Meatless Mondays, I'm not sure if that's still a thing, but that has been a thing that has been talked about a lot um, in nutrition and something that has been pushed in government agencies. Um, and I I am all for if you don't want to have meat in your diet, then don't. That's your agency to choose that. But why are we pushing that agenda on people or why are we making people think that proteins, especially meat-based proteins, are not healthy for them? That is very discouraging, I think, um, to agriculture as a whole because we know that animal-based proteins are very efficient, are very nutrient-dense, and are one of the best ways to utilize so much farm and ranch land that is otherwise unusable. Um, what else would we be doing with all of these, this area that cannot be planted to fruits and vegetables and row crops, if not grazing it with cattle? And I'm speaking specifically on cattle because that is um, important to me, but the same is true for pork or other animal proteins. This is a little bit off topic, but I think it plays well into the conversation as a whole. When we think about the food decisions that we make and who has an influence on them, uh, there's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of controversy out there. And we can fight all day about who's right and who's wrong. But until we give more information to people instead of telling them what is healthy and what is not healthy, Um, especially when we're talking about whole foods, when we're talking about beef, when we're talking about pork, chicken, apples, you know, spinach, those foods that are unprocessed. And we're going to talk about what is healthy and what is not healthy. This goes back to a lot of the marketing campaigns that happened in the past where, you know, um, 
people decided that breakfast was an important meal of the day and you had to eat breakfast. And it was pushed in so many marketing campaigns. And now an entire generation, probably multiple generations, think that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Is there any science behind that? There's actually not. There's not a lot. There's a lot of very um, varied. There's a lot of different opinions about this. There's a lot of different science and studies looking at it from different points of view. But because of the marketing that wasn't put into it and how it was presented to people as fact, when actually there was no proof of that fact, uh, a lot of people believe that. Similarly, a lot of people have begun to believe that meats are not good for them, that they are too fattening, that they should be eating a totally green-based diet. There were marketing campaigns um, that said, you know, don't eat breads, don't eat eggs and bacon. It's just, we go in such trends and the people that have the most money access the most people the most quickly. And so those opinions are formed fast. And we don't really have the luxury of providing information to people in a way that is not persuasive. And that is what is most frustrating about food decisions is that so many people are impacted by marketing information instead of nutrition information. Okay, let's circle back around to talking about defining more of these things about the food system that we can agree on and make generalizations about and hopefully inspire more conversations about how we can affect them. So um, there's a graph and I'm going to include it on my website um, in the show notes and link back to it. But it is, I cannot figure out which link it is from. I will put that in the show notes. So um, the the sources will be accurate in the show notes. I don't have them top of hand right now. But this graph um, is breaking down how the food system starts at an individual level. And I say it starts there. Probably it's the opposite of it ends there. Um, But on an individual level, our knowledge, our attitude, and our skills about food affect the food system. From there, the next ring of um, influence is interpersonal, our family, our friends, our social networks, the environment that we are putting ourselves in affects our food decisions. It affects our food system. Outside of that is organizational, organizations, businesses, and institutions. So this would be um, kind of top-down information or things like the extension office, um, your school lunch system, um, grocery stores that are in your area, institutions like potentially USDA or the local food bank, things like that. Um, The next step is community, county, municipality, coalitions, and networks. So this is In my mind, it's kind of hard to separate organizational and community because they tie so closely together in a lot of cases um, because a lot of the community things are funded through organizational things. Um, So like your account, like I said, your county food bank, um, your harvesters network, the local food hub, a a food co-op, some of those things that are inspired by your community or formed by groups of individuals, but they may have some organizational funding or um, backing from other institutions to make those resources possible. And then outside of that um, is society. So society as a whole has a huge impact on our food system. And there's a couple different ways of looking at this. This could be, um, you know, the media. It could be how food conversations are perceived that you have online, because that's more thinking about society versus your interpersonal community. Um, but you see how there's these different levels of impact on the food system, and it goes all the way from nationwide and even global institutions to the community you live in, to the friends you hang out with, to you individually as a person, the knowledge and the attitudes and the skills that you have about your food. Okay. So overlaying that, 
with another graph. We have um, the food system elements. Again, I will link this in the show notes so that you guys can take a look at it visually. But we it's basically a wheel or a circle, a never-ending circle, um, an infinite loop of the food system. So it starts with food production. From when the food is produced, our next step is distribution and aggregation. Um, so this is like it goes on a truck. It is transported somewhere. The next step is food processing, and then followed by that is marketing. After that is markets and purchasing. So this would be like your grocery store or where you are buying your food from. After that is preparation and consumption. And then the final step before we repeat the process is resource and water recovery. So after you have prepared or consumed the food, you're washing your dishes, you're throwing away your scraps, you are trying, we're trying to utilize what is left after this entire process and to put it back into the system. Um, there's actually probably like interlinks between these different steps of the food system where, you know, we have um, things in food production that are waste material that actually are resource and waste recovery. They go right back into food production just in a different place. So when we overlay the food system with kind of the impact of these different stages on the food system, like the individual, interpersonal, organization, community, and society level, most of us at the food production stage of the system do not have an individual impact on the food that is produced. We have, we may have some, we may be growing our own tomatoes in our backyard, or if you are a producer, you may have a little bit more in individual agency in this section. You get to decide what you are producing. Um, you get to decide how your food is being produced. You get to decide a lot about that. But for most of the population, they do not have very much individual input in this stage. Um, as producers, we do. We get to decide if we are doing grain-finished, grass-finished beef. We get to decide if we are organic or conventional. We get to decide if we are intensive or double cropping or, you know, like there are so many production pieces that go into this. We get to decide specifically what product, um, what crops or animals we are producing and putting inputs into. Um, but mostly food production is influenced societally and organizationally. Okay. We are making as decisions, we are making those decisions as producers based on what society tells us they want, which is good. We want to be aligned with consumer demand and based on what organizations tell us or information they provide us about what is going to be profitable, um, about what crops are going to make sense in our environment, about what crops have insurance available, um, things like that. So at the food production stage, the highest impact is going to be from organizations and society. And as producers, we get to be involved in that decision. But a lot of times we as producers are not necessarily eating the end product that we produce. Um, if you are a smaller direct-to-consumer farmer, that may be the case. But even then, um, a lot of us that are direct-to-consumer farmers don't actually eat our own produce. We sell it. That is our income. We um, end up buying cheaper food elsewhere. And that is not always the case, but making generalizations here. All right. Distribu distribution and aggregation. Again, this is mainly going to be influenced by society, by organizations, and some community. Um, if you have different resources available in your community, then that can affect how things are distributed and how those transportation pieces happen. And there's actually transportation uh, pieces in between every single step on the food system. When we get to food processing, um, again, we have very little uh, impact as an individual on that stage. And then we get to marketing. And then here is where our impact really begins because, believe it or not, mostly 
we have an impact on what marketing is provided to us. And that impact is how we engage with that marketing. If we accept the marketing as true and let it influence our decisions, then we will continue to receive more similar marketing. If the marketing doesn't work, if it does not influence our decisions, then we will start to receive different kinds of marketing. So this first stage here of marketing is where we start to have an individual impact. And then we move into markets and purchasing, where we shop, where we choose to buy our foods. We have a huge impact on that individually. Preparation and consumption, that is almost all individual or interpersonal impact. Um, whether you are preparing your food or a family member is or you know a local person in your community is preparing it. And then resource and waste recovery. This also we have a large impact on from our part of the system. We don't have nearly as much on the food production or the distribution, the processing, but on our end of what we buy at the store, how we prepare it, how much of it is consumed, and then what we do with the materials after that point, we do have an impact on that and how we utilize those resources. Um, And sometimes it's difficult to think of those things as resources um, because they're just like scraps from our food or they are things that got moldy in the fridge or, you know, potato peels or whatever it is. Like, how do we think of that as a resource? But uh, it, it, we do have an impact on it and it does matter. It adds up. Uh, it's hard to think about, you know, in the grand scheme of things does not throwing my potato peels in a landfill actually matter? And granted, in the grand scheme of waste, one household's waste has such a low impact on that huge number. But when multiple households start doing the same things, their actions add up. There have been studies on how backyard chickens can help support this by instead of throwing away food waste, it is instead fed to the chickens. And you may think you don't have that much in food waste every week, um, but they are, the studies have shown that methane produced from food waste in landfills, that it, it does contribute, it does add up. And just um, by instead feeding that to chickens, we can affect how much waste goes into landfills and the methane that is produced by that waste. And I mean, there's other issues at that play into this as well. Like, obviously, chickens also create waste um, that has to be managed, especially if it is in um, an urban setting where chickens are not normally housed. Um, but you start to kind of uncover this whole intertwined understanding of the food system that literally everything affects the food system. Ultimately, it all ties back to this concept of there is always going to be a reaction or a consequence for what we do. And with food being one of the biggest resources on our planet and that we utilize resources to create, it impacts everything. It is a resource, and how we manage that resource impacts everything else. People are one of the other best resources that our planet has because we are the ones who make the decisions. We are the ones who choose how the resources are spent. But if we don't have adequate, available, accessible, affordable food, then we are not able to function as humans to make those decisions about how we manage our resources. So everything is interconnected. When we have war, when we have shortages, when we have anything that impacts the security of our food, it impacts the entire planet. It impacts every aspect of our lives. And so one of the most valuable things that we can do in regards to food security, not only for our own benefit, but for the benefit of society as a whole, is to learn more about how we can utilize food as a resource. And that means 
learning how to prepare it better, learning different ways to consume it so that it is more affordable or more, more accessible, about how to manage our waste from it, about how to acquire it, about how to transport it, all of these different things, and about how to produce it if you are someone who also produces food um, or interested in producing at least some of your own food. All of these things matter so much. And yet, going back to the last episode on this topic, we are we are so disconnected from our food. We do not look at it, most of us, as such a huge part of our life when it is the basis for all life. We don't consider it as a resource. It's usually an afterthought. It's the thing that we think about at the very end of the day after we're exhausted from everything else in our life that is a priority or a responsibility. And it gets the bare minimum leftovers of our conscious decision-making skills. And I think we have to change that. We have to change that if we want to continue to have a society that functions, if we want to continue to have a planet that functions. And there's a lot of different information and research that needs to be done and things that need to be thought about. So who better to think about them than the people who are involved in producing the food, involved in deciding how food is distributed and prepared, which if you are listening to the pod, this podcast, I'm assuming that's you. So thank you so much for indulging me in continuing this topic. I hope that some of the things that we talked about are valuable to you and get some of the energy flowing in your brain. I would love to hear your insights and experiences around this topic and what you're curious about, what you want to learn more about around food accessibility and security and stability. So please chime in on social media, send me an email. Um, thank you to all of you who did that after the first episode. I am loving hearing what you guys are commenting back. Um, so much valuable input. I'm just shocked and amazed at, at the responses I'm getting from people on that last episode about food. So thank you. Thank you for being vulnerable and, and being open to sharing your thoughts about that. I really appreciate it. And I hope you continue to do that because that's how we get better and how we learn more about this topic. Do you know someone building their ag legacy or with stories of yesteryear on the farm that need to be shared? Please let us know or help them apply to be a guest on the show at farmingonpurpose.com guest. If you've enjoyed spending time with us today, please take a moment to review the show on Apple Podcasts or give us a share on social media. You can follow the host of Farming on Purpose, Lexi, at, at Farming on Purpose on all social media. And let us know what topics you want to hear more about.